Was it right for Moses to confront Pharaoh? Was it right for Nathan to preach to King David? Was it right for Elijah to speak to King Ahab? Was it right for Daniel to speak against Nebuchadnezzar? Was it right for John the Baptist to deal with King Herod? Yes, it was right, but we must respectfully speak. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Book of Romans, we find ourselves in chapter 13 dealing with the topic of government. As we pick up, Pastor Carl notes that government is an institution established by God to carry out justice within a given region. And governments which are to be equitable are also called to be just and to execute justice swiftly in the case of lawbreakers. And so the church at Rome is warned by Paul, if you do what is evil, be afraid. Why should they be afraid? Because it is possible for even a Christian to take the law into his own hands, to rebel against the government. And Paul said, if you do what is wrong, you ought to be afraid because the government is not to be a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter what the government may do in terms of executing that. He is in the right if he's putting down evil, whether it is the police officer pulling the trigger to protect an innocent life or whether it is someone else pulling the switch on the electric chair. God speaks of the sword as an avenger of evil. And this is a theme that runs all the way through the Scripture. And I think we need to hear this because now in the pro-life movement, especially in the Roman Catholic Church that totally opposes capital punishment, we need to understand that capital punishment in God's economy and in the Word of God is a very pro-life stance. And I want you to see why. Jot down some of these verses. Genesis 9 and verse 6. There are Moses wrote, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. The taking of a human life, murder is such a heinous offense to God who made man in his image. God says, ever before Moses even gave the Mosaic law, this is pre-law, that it demands the forfeiture of the man's life. Then under the law, Moses echoes that truth. There we read in Exodus 21 and verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. You know the context of the verse. He's not talking about accidental murder or accidental death or or manslaughter. The Bible elsewhere distinguishes the difference. Moses is speaking about premeditated, cold-blooded murder. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And let me add, the punishment should be swift. The government, as a minister of God, does not have any punch. It has lost its authority when the punishment is not justly and swiftly executed. Ecclesiastes tells us that. Solomon wrote, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. So the average stay on death row is 14 years. Now, I believe in our judicial system, but the process somehow needs to be sped up because God wants the government to have the power to protect life. 
people say, well, capital punishment is cruel and it's unloving. No, it's not cruel. Coddling the criminal is cruel. Pacifying the murderer is cruel. Slapping the wrist is cruel to the community. When capital punishment is exercised biblically, which required premeditated murder, a minimum of two or three clear witnesses for everything is to be established on the basis of two or three witnesses, then it was to be carried out and it was to be done swiftly. In England, they followed capital punishment until 1965. And the police didn't even carry guns. They carried bobby sticks. Even when I went to England for the first time in the early 1970s, most of the police officers did not carry weapons. Just a stick. But since 1965, the murder rate has gone up in England 7,000%, and they carry automatic weapons just like our people. So capital punishment is God's way to protect life. Listen, when you steal something from me, you can pay it back. But when you take my life, you cannot take, you cannot pay it back, and God's word demands that your life be taken. King Henry VIII, on one occasion, had a criminal who came to him guilty of murder, and he should have received capital punishment, but he pled with the king for mercy, and the king let him go. Then he went out, and shortly later he murdered again. When he came before the king again, the king chronicled in his records, no, I will show no mercy. He killed the first man, but I killed the second man, and I will kill no more. Let me give you some of the arguments people use against capital punishment. They will often quote passages like Matthew 5 and verse 44. They will say, well, didn't Jesus say to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you? Yes, he did. But please know that you cannot truly love without hating. Love that doesn't hate is hypocritical love. Listen, if a man truly loves what is right, then he is going to hate what is wrong. A person who loves people will hate murder. We are to follow the principle taught in Scripture to hate the sin, but to love the sinner. And loving even our enemy does not mean that we are to give approval to all that he does. Still others would say, well, capital punishment is a form of revenge, and we are not to take revenge. And they will quote the verse that we looked at last week, if you were here. Remember it? Romans 12, um, never take your own revenge, God said, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. God does not say there is to be no revenge. God said, vengeance is mine. And sometimes God will carry that vengeance out, not just in eternity, where he makes every wrong right, but he carries it out through his servant, the government, who is called a minister, the servant of God. Now, we have no right to take into our own hands that which is God's. We have no right to have authority that God gave uniquely to the government. And when a nation takes the law into his own hands, you have anarchy. You you say, well, wait a minute, pastor. And we looked at this, but let me just review it for you. What if someone breaks into my house and tries to hurt me? Do I have a right to take revenge? Of course you do in that sense. That's not revenge. That's self-defense. Again, last week we studied Exodus 22.2, and I spent a lot of time on this, and you might want to go back and listen to the message if you're here for the first time, but it says if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. 
You go back into the context of the passage. If it's dark, especially in a day when there's no electricity and someone is breaking into your house and you don't know if they're going to harm you or your wife or your children, and in the process of defending yourself, you take their life, God says you are not guilty. But then God quickly adds, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. What does that mean? It means if you see the thief and he's breaking into your house and neither your life nor your wife's life nor your children's life are in jeopardy, and yet you take his life anyway, God says you are guilty of murder. Now, there is a place to defend life, and what applies to one or two people can uh, apply to two or three million people. Some of my Amish friends, some of my Seventh-day Adventist friends tell me that if you take another man's life, you are guilty of breaking one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill. Well, let me just say, in 17th century English, the word murder did not exist. Just like in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's one word, kill. And the context determines whether it's kill uh, versus murder. And so that's clear from other passages of Scripture. And so today we translate in the Decalogue, you shall not murder, because there is a time when a man can be guilty of murder. And then we read in the very next chapter, in Exodus chapter 21, that you shall not kill. There is a difference. Understand that all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. And there are many examples of that. Think about King David, who led many a campaign against the evil, wicked people that lived in the land, those who sacrificed even their own little babies. And God said he was right in doing what he did. But on another occasion, when he stayed home, when he should have been in the battle, and in the process he lusts after a woman, and to cover up his adultery, he, he takes Uriah's life, he kills him. He's not only guilty of killing, he is guilty of murder. There is a difference. And this is why it is very important for a nation to have leaders who know when it is right to take human life, they know when it is right to entrust troops and to put them in harm's way, and they know when to apply the pressure, how much pressure to apply, and when it is right to do it. And so if you do not have moral leadership in a nation, it is a disaster. And so Christians ought to clearly know when is war correct, when it is moral. If you study the scripture, and I should probably do a whole sermon on this since we have so many Marines and Navy personnel in this church, you should have a biblical theology for war that will encompass at least three things. Number one, the cause must be just. The cause must be just to protect life, to protect loved ones, to protect innocent people. Number two, your intentions must be noble. Your intentions are for peace, for freedom, for safety, not for some greedy, selfish cause. And number three, it should be the last resort. We're to be known first as peacemakers, and you should avoid war whenever possible. Now, I know there are pacifists, maybe some who are listening to me today, who say, well, pastor, you believe a man without Christ is lost. And if I go to war, and I've been told this by Christians in other countries, if I go to war and I take a gun and I shoot the enemy and that enemy is an unbeliever, then I have just sent that enemy into a life without Christ. And what if I shoot the enemy and he's my brother in Christ? I'm not to kill my brother in Christ. Well, number one, if it is a just war, then your brother should have never been in that war to begin with. But number two, 
if a man will not get right with God with death facing him right in the face, then I want to tell you he will never get right with God. Sometimes God uses capital punishment. Sometimes God uses war to prepare people for eternity. The thief on the cross is a classic example. He's under capital punishment, and in the final hours of his life, he cries out, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so the Bible is clear that not all human life is to be preserved at all costs. There is a stage sometimes where God prepares people for eternity, and he uses even war and capital punishment. And God gives that authority to bear the sword to the government. And so pacifists who argue against capital punishment, who argue against war, neither understand, one, the nature of man, nor the word of God. I often will ask a conscientious objector this, and I asked this when I was in Eastern Europe recently, and I was speaking to a group of men who were opposed to all war, and I said, let me ask you a question. Someone breaks into your home tonight, and they're threatening your wife's life, maybe your life, maybe your children's life. Or you're walking down the street and there's no police officer to be found anywhere. And you see some man trying to take the life of an innocent child. Are you going to do nothing? Will you do all in your power to, to stop that person even if you have to take his life? If you're not, you're a coward and there's something wrong with you. Listen, if someone threatens your life or your children or your wife's life, you ought to do everything to protect life. Well, you just take the principle and expand it. What's a policeman? A policeman really is a soldier. And when you have a lot of policemen together, you, you, you have a mini army. I'm told that the police force of New York City is over 35,000 officers, and that's the size of the army of many countries of this world. And let me just say parenthetically, it's about time that many of these police officers, and I think we have 18 or 19 in our own church, who are in putting themselves in harm's way, it's about time that we say a good word about some of these men. I feel like in the last decade, a lot of them have gotten a bad rap, and it's only less than one half of one percent who ever dishonored the badge. And if we need to say anything, we need to say something positive. Yes, there are bad cops, but there's bad preachers too, and we need to affirm these who are willing to lay their life, and those even firemen and military in our church who are willing to pay, if necessary, the ultimate price. We should affirm them, we should pray for them, but we shouldn't rag on them. What happened with John the Baptist? Remember, some soldiers came to him to be baptized, and they asked the question in Luke 3, and what about us? What shall we do? What did the man of God say? He didn't tell them to get out of the army. He said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. In other words, there's no need to get out of the army, but if you're in the army, you ought to be content with your wages and you shouldn't use your position for evil and to extort money from people. If it was wrong to be in the military, then John the Baptist would have said, you want to repent? Get out of the military. But that's not what the man of God said. And a police force is really nothing more than a small army. And so if a police force is wrong, then so is the army, so is the Navy, so is the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and all the rest. No, it's not wrong. God recognizes the evil fallen nature of man. Again, folks will quote Matthew 5, 44. How can you kill someone? And at the same time, love even your enemy. Loving your enemy has nothing to do with hating your enemy. Do you think a judge has to hate every criminal before he can pass a sentence on him? 
Do you think a, a police officer must hate someone before he can arrest him? Do you think a soldier has to be filled with hate before he has to do the job that he's called to do? No, we're to love all people, but we are to stand against that which is evil. Listen, war is horrible, but there is a time for war. Patrick Henry, an early American Christian statesman, said this, why do we stand here idle? What is this? What is it that the gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Listen, because of men who have defended this nation, I stand today in a free pulpit because they were willing to defend freedom. And sometimes defending a country means that you have to go to war. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a warmonger. I have four sons, and it would break my heart if any of their lives were lost in a war. My son, I gave him my blessing when he went to Afghanistan for nine months, and I tell you, I prayed for him more than I've ever prayed in my whole life. And I thank God he came back safely. But listen, sometimes that's what you need to do. Sometimes you need to stand up for what is right and get against that which is evil. So number one, you should submit to the government because God supports law and order. Number two, civil disobedience brings condemnation. And then the third reason here in verse five, obeying the government is simply the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Notice verse 5 begins with the word therefore, signaling to us that a conclusion is about to be drawn from what has just been said. Not only is it right because God has established all gov government, not only is it right to obey because disobedience brings punishment, but the third reason it is right is he says for conscience sake. Look at verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Let me ask you a question that I asked myself this week. When you're driving down the road, maybe that's section of 995, some of you know right where it is. There's guardrail on both sides, swamp on either side, no police officers in the wood. It goes for about a two-mile stretch. If you know there's absolutely no police around, would you push the pedal? And if you didn't, why would you not? Would it be because you'd be afraid of a ticket only? Or would you not push the pedal for conscience sake? That's what he is saying here. He's saying, listen, you want not just to avoid wrath, but you want to have a clear conscience before God. And of course, a man's conscience is no better than the thing that sets it. And some of us don't realize, some of us are hard-headed, myself included, that what the Scripture says in reference to submitting even to the speed limit. Sometimes we learn the hard way. You know, I used to go by that slogan, uh, uh, a state he told me years ago, he said, if it's 11, you're fine. If it's 12, you're mine. That's what he used to, This is a friend of mine. Say, oh, this is the, okay, so I can set it 10 above. For conscience sake... For conscience sake, we are to be in subjection. Now, some people have a seared conscience, and they've burned out all the nerve endings through repeated disobedience. Some do not have a conscience that has been calibrated by the Word of God. Now, let me close with three applications this morning, three duties that we have to our government. Number one, Christians 
should be model citizens. We ought to be model citizens and respectful of those who govern over us. We should not just be seen for demanding and rebuking and employing a thousand different tactics to make sure that our rights are defended. Why? Because we recognize that there is a higher, greater, eternal, divine king who has the king's heart in his hand. And so we should, among other things, be known for showing honor to the government. We'll come to it next week in verse 7. Honor to whom honor is due. Peter said in the parallel text in 1 Peter 2.17, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And Nero was in power when he said that. It's important that we honor those who are in authority. We're to speak certainly with respect when we discuss the mayor or the city councilman or the school principal or the board member or the police officer or even the president of the United States. That doesn't mean that we don't confront the government at times. Was it right for Moses to confront Pharaoh? Was it right for Nathan to preach to King David? Was it right for Elijah to speak to King Ahab? Was it right for Daniel to speak against Nebuchadnezzar? Was it right for John the Baptist to deal with King Herod? Yes, it was right, but we must respectfully speak. And I have an announcement to make this morning. Just as long as this government is killing innocent little babies, practicing infanticide, saying that perverted sex is normal sex and should be protected, and just as long as they're teaching our little children to have safe sex, then I am going to speak out against this government. But by the grace of God, I will do it respectfully. We ought to be model citizens. And we need to realize that our viewpoint upon which this nation was founded is now becoming a minority viewpoint. But nonetheless, we should be model citizens. Secondly, the solution for a rebellious society is not simply passing more laws. The solution is not simply passing more laws. Now, it is true that the government in several ways really are to respect what God is like. They are to represent God, and so they're called the minister of God. How do they represent God? Because God puts down evil, and we will ultimately see that in the end, and God will praise good. Those who've been saved by grace and their lives have been transformed. But understand, a government can pass law after law after law after law after law and change nothing. A law does not change the heart of a people. It cannot change a person. It's like the little boy who is given the command, sit down. And yet on the inside, he's standing up. And so that leads me to our third point. As Christians, we need to stay on track. We need to stay on focus and we need to remember our mission. The only thing that can change a person is not some law that the government puts down. The only thing that can truly change a person, a law may put his behavior in check, but the only thing that can really truly internally change the person is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Jesus did not say, go make moral, morally bad people morally better. No, the command was, go therefore and make disciples. And how do you make disciples? How do you make converts? There's only one way through the preaching of the gospel. Cal Thomas was one of the architects of the moral majority in the 1980s. And of course, they worked so hard, but in the end, it was a total failure. And he wrote a few years ago these words in his column. He said, for Christians, the vision of worldly power and influence is not a calling, but a distraction. 
It is a temptation that Jesus Christ himself rejected, not because it was dangerous, but because it was trivial compared with his mission. And that is true. We focused on changing the government, changing the government, get them registered, get them out to vote, and we should do that. But that is not our primary focus. And we focused on that as the evangelical church for three decades. And look at where we are today. We have missed our major calling. Listen, if this country depended on your obedience and your faithfulness to share the gospel such that lives are changed, how would this country do? You see, some of us no longer are faithful. The average evangelical church is no longer preaching the gospel faithfully. We have a holy huddle and we have stopped going out into the highways and the byways to preach the gospel. C.S. Lewis insightfully wrote these words. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Let's stay on track. Yes, we have the largest churches in evangelical history and we have the most reprobate country we've had in our history. We're going in the wrong direction. Because the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ that produces a changed life is no longer being shared, not just from the pulpit, but from the pew as we gather and then scatter to tell a lost world how they can be forgiven and changed. We need to stay on track to our high commander, Jesus Christ. Now, our Father, we thank you today for this text of Scripture. It speaks to so many different issues in our lives. Father, I may be speaking today to someone who opposes capital punishment, but may you remind them that it was the Lord Jesus who experienced himself capital punishment on a brutal, bloody Roman cross. And it was not simply the Jews and the Gentiles who put him there, but your word says you put him there. You were pleased to crush him. This one who in every word, thought, and deed did nothing but righteousness bought our salvation through that act. Help someone today to recognize that their only hope for heaven, their only hope for change, their only hope for a new life is to call upon this one who died and who was raised on their behalf, that their membership, their sacraments, their ordinances, their obedience, their golden rule can never save them, but only Jesus saves. If that's you, my friend, I invite you there in the quietness of your heart to say, Lord Jesus, Save me. Now, our Father, we pray that as a people, we would be respectful of our government. You've given us a ministry to pray for our government, for it is you who hear the prayer of your people. And if we don't pray, who will? But our Father, we pray that even in these days as our government becomes more and more opposed to the simple values of your word, that if we become so low and so wicked as a nation, that we will no matter what stand for what is right and true, and we will in no way transgress the authority of your word. We need grace to do that. We need grace to pull this off. But thank you that your grace is sufficient. May we find it today to the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
God instituted government, and we should pray for our leaders. However, when man's law attempts to overstep or underwrite God's law, we should not be silent. Today's study on the Christian and government from Romans chapter 13 can be heard again by downloading the Search the Scriptures app. There you can listen to the entire Romans series. Just look up Search the Scriptures in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program ROM62. Tomorrow we begin a look at the Christian's debt. Join us then as we search the scriptures. Mm-hmm.